Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell. Do farm animals experience emotions? Or are the behaviours people perceive as emotions purely an instinctive response? Animal welfare science is well advanced, based on the principle that all animals experience pleasure and pain, and that all animals should have the opportunity to express natural behaviours. But are farm animals really emotional? For example, do cows feel happy or depressed? And does it really matter? Should a farm animal's ability to react instinctively or respond emotionally affect the way that we care for and handle livestock? I'm joined by two experts in the field. Professor David Main is a veterinary surgeon and professor of production of animal health and welfare at the Royal Agricultural University. Rachel Haller is a cattle farmer for Maundraws Farm in Somerset who helped as part of the RAU's Farmer Working Group on a project to develop a positive welfare framework. Welcome both. Hello. Hi. David, from an academic or physiological perspective, what's the difference between instinct and emotion? Instincts are things, behaviours that animals do that they don't need to learn about, that are a basis of their genes and their environment, etc., that they they just do and always do, and they don't have to have prior learning. Whereas emotion, of course, is about the feeling the good or the bad uh, emotional sense that an animal has in response to an environment. So an animal may be showing an instinctive behaviour, avoiding something, but that may or may not be associated with an emotional sense. So so is choice part of that? I mean, you've specialised in farm animal welfare across your career. And so how do we know that farm animals are experiencing emotions and that these behaviours that we're observing aren't simply just instinctive responses? Yeah, there's been quite a a lot of effort in the scientific literature to to understand the emotional state of the animals. I mean, one can get all philosophical about this and start thinking. Well, please do, you know. <laughs> And even for people, we don't really know what's going on in other people's heads at any one time. But actually, the physiological neuroanatomy behaviours that animals are showing match so closely onto our emotional uh, responses that it's highly likely that they that they are uh, uh, emotional responses. And of course, from an evolutionary point of view, the, the point of consciousness, did consciousness suddenly arrive with humans? No, consciousness has been... Is, is an evolutionary advantage that many other animals are experiencing. So, yeah, the way that animals uh, respond, they respond predictably to positive and negative experiences, gives us a pretty good indication that they are experiencing emotions. So, so if we take that sort of philosophical view that, that you introduced there, then I don't know if you're feeling anything emotionally. I can't know that for sure. But I know that I'm feeling something and that I'm reacting to something. And, and because your brain is wired similarly, um, and because uh, large animals, for example, have similar wiring, from that perspective, we can take a, a pretty good bet that, that they experience emotions. Yeah, that's good. Exactly that. And, and the point is, we can can then predict. We can predict how humans are going to behave and we can predict how animals are behaving in similar circumstances. So it gives us a pretty good idea that they are experiencing similarly bad things that they don't like and similarly good things that they do choose, that they would choose to, to access, giving us an indication of what things that they like as well as which things that they want to avoid and that are aversive. So when I framed that last question to you, it was around large animals because, you know, I think if we see an animal that's a similar size to 
to us, you know, give or take, then it's it's easier to kind of assume that they experience something in a relatively similar way. But is there a difference between species? So, for example, do chickens or, or do fish experience emotion in the same way that larger animals like cattle and sheep do? We don't know. We never will know exactly what it is to experience from their point of view. And, and that is likely never going to be the case. But we know from an analogy that they're likely to feel similar positive and negative emotions. Exactly how that is played out is, is difficult to know. I think going back to philosophy, if you like, the Jeremy Bentham famous philosopher talked about animals whether it's not it's not a question of whether they reason it's a question of or talk it's a question of whether they suffer and certainly from a a moral perspective how we look after farm animals crucially is whether they can suffer and what things we can provide and as i'm sure we're going to talk about in a minute is what things that they like too also has a role to play in seeing how we should care for animals so we talked there about the way the brain is and the ability to suffer but i'm wondering if there are sort of experiments that you're aware of with you know chicken or fish or or larger animals that have helped to demonstrate that emotional response that emotional side of the behavior Yes. So a good example is what they, their increased sensitivity in a pain state. So uh, animals can be uh, subjected to pain during husbandry procedures, etc. And these animals remember those, those circumstances and avoid those similar situations, showing that it's aversive, as you like. And they're also showed high sensitivity because the physiology of the pain system is that you become hypersensitive. And so they show the similar hypersensitivity as people do. There's one infamous experiment, and maybe this is a diversion, but I can tell you anyway. And that's that's around the pain associated with circumcision in babies. In babies, it was it was assumed that circumcision wasn't a painful operation, but they they had some babies that have been circumcised with or without a local anaesthetic and that they could see several months later when these babies were then given their routine vaccinations is that those babies that had had circumcision without local anaesthetic, their pain reactions, their vocalisations were much more extreme than if they uh, hadn't had it. So indicating that it was a painful event that they experienced. The local anaesthetic was a better thing to do. And it actually persists for quite a long time, for several months. And there's an emotional memory associated exactly. with that, which contributes to the response then to the vaccination. That's really interesting. Rachel, when we spoke before the programme, there was no doubt in your mind that cattle are emotional creatures. What makes you so sure? Well, firstly, I'd just like to sort of just sort of set the scene in terms of where I'm coming from as a, as a farmer in this conversation. So, uh, so we're farming about... 78 hectares down in Somerset on the coastal levels which is adjacent to the um, Bristol Channel below sea level. Over a third of the farm has got herbal multi-species lays sown and we're finishing um, native side organic cattle at about 22 to 24 months off of grass and forage. This has replaced what was a dairy system. So we were dairy up until two years ago. Most of our stores are bought as weaned, uh, but we seem to have accrued a dozen suckler cows, which is interesting because I do remember having conversations saying we weren't going to have suckler cows. Uh, We seem to have got a dozen here, which I think have filled the emotional hole left by our dairy cows leaving, which is interesting. So so that was was your emotional hole? I think so. I think we needed some cows to just uh, have on the farm, 
just uh, as a sort of backstop so we can go and have a, have a scratch for them. So uh, that, that was interesting in itself. Yeah, so examples of, of why I think cattle are emotional creatures. Last weekend, actually, we went to visit some friends up in Shropshire who bought a couple of our dairy heifers two years ago. So these heifers have been on the farm for about six to eight months with us, and then they moved to Shropshire to these friends and we walked into the field after after lunch to go and see the cows we went in with some other people and one of these heifers actually strode up to me and literally sort of headbutted me and wanted a scratch of course I uh, I reciprocated and I scratched the cow and uh, yes I, I can't deny a little, a little tear in my eye to think that she recognized me then I thought perhaps I'm being silly and she didn't recognize me and I turned around to the other lady behind me and said well that was weird wasn't it I, do you think she recognized me and she said well she didn't do it to me and I walked past her you know I, I can't prove that can I but it was very interesting and um, yeah it was nice I think that um, that she recognized me and we did yeah we did, she had some scratches and uh, she then went off to eat so uh, so that you know maybe that's that's an emotion there's also other examples I can give the time in February when the grass down here in Somerset just starts to grow and starts to green up uh, the cows seem to be able to smell it and they put their heads and noses over the over the wall of the yards where they're, they're housed over the winter um, and this is the time of year that you've got to be very careful not to leave a gate open by mistake or unlatched uh, because they will escape out into the field but when it is their time to go out there is certainly some play behavior and I, I believe on the in Denmark and other countries they actually do do this as a, as a day for the nation to come and watch the cows being turned out now you could argue well yeah they're pleased to be out to eat the grass but then why run around on it and play around on it why don't they just put their heads down and eat there's obviously something going on there that they are enjoying being out in the field for the first time in the spring and if you've got that sort of smell response that you were talking about there then that you know that's sort of creeping in for days or for for the weeks before they are let out and that sort of sense of excitement must be building and then it, it you know when you open the gate the dam bursts i think so and i think we all we all experience it when we say oh i think spring is starting to come because there's a bit more bird song and there's some the soil smells a bit different and there are there are triggers we all we all feel it so why wouldn't why wouldn't a cow feel it they also show curiosity and fear and and sometimes they can do those two together so if you go into a field a new person goes into the field of cattle and just stands there the cattle will come up quite curiously and they sort of timidly come up up to you and then if you just stand still they'll come up and start licking you or get close but if you perhaps move your hand or brush your hair away or take your coat off they jump back and then they start creeping up again. So that that's, I think that's an emotion, that's a curious fear. So there are lots of examples when I think it's just spending the time to stop and think about them. And then it, you realise there are quite a lot of examples of that. And there's a degree to which if it was instinctive behaviour, then they'd all do basically the same thing kind of at the same time when they're reacting to something. Uh, and, you know, I know when I walk through a field of cows that you've got cows that are more confident or a little bit stroppier, a little bit more friendly, a little bit more curious. And there is that sort of that emotional diversity within a herd. There is. And I think I don't, yeah, there's probably something more that David could comment on. The different, I was trying to think about it myself. What, how do we differ characters and characteristics and personalities? It's a, but there are, they do have different um, 
different likes and dislikes and there are some that are bolder than others that makes part of the job that we do uh, more interesting it wouldn't it be dull if they were all the same <laughs> now you spent 25 years as you said as a dairy farmer and dairy farms now are getting bigger and bigger as increasingly they get consolidated do you think that farmers are less able to give cows a good life and respond to their emotional needs on these large farms of 500 or 800 cows i don't think i don't think it's a, it's a case of large herds versus small herds argument I don't think that's that's relevant I think what's important is how that farm is managed and how that unit is managed particularly uh, based on what resources they've got Um, so labour availability and the time available to spend with cows and with the cattle on that farm is probably the the limiting factor so having time out in the day and the routines of actually being with the cows and not having to do a job. So having time to to look over the gate and actually look and see what's happening with the cows rather than head down on the tractor, scraping, doing some milking, doing time out of the job in terms of actually looking at the cows um, and having a sufficient number of people. So it's an ongoing challenge at the moment and um, it's a very difficult one. Stock keepers need to be consistent. So having the right people trained up to follow the same protocols is is equally important. But also it can be, um, you know, there is a, a sort of converse argument in actually a very small herd of cows managed by one person, 365 days a year. Those cows actually might have problems with uh, with strangers coming onto the farm or say a vet, a vet comes on the farm because they actually have had less socialisation. So they haven't been used to lots of new people um, and they'll find that stranger interaction more stressful. So I don't, I don't think it's a, a, a large versus small argument. And I guess if there's just in that scenario where you've just got one farmer then you know if they're coming up against things that they don't understand or they haven't haven't encountered before then their knowledge base is smaller i suppose than if you've got several stock people there so so i think that what you're saying is it doesn't really matter if it's a really big farm or, you know or a relatively small farm it's about the stock person ratio stock person cow ratio uh, and making sure that, that that there's some consistency that the people who are looking after the cows are genuinely tending to their needs which is really interesting so so if we take that size issue I I guess there's a system issue as well and so the question is really around uh, sort of fully indoor permanently housed cattle and seasonally grazed cattle and this issue comes up a lot in dairy particularly now where there is an ever greater intensification and, and sort of more indoor herds in Britain is whether or not cows need grass and bearing in mind those emotional needs that we've been discussing what do you think? I think it's a, it's a simple question but quite a complicated answer I don't, I don't think it's about do cows need grass more than it's it's about enriched environments so I don't think it's a out at grass versus housed argument per se you could argue that cows that go out in a field with no diversity in the sward so they've only got grass just one variety of grass to eat if they've got no shelter from inclement weather they've got no no enriched things to play with or you know good tracks that would probably be no better than a really good enriched environment indoors, which has got, say, um, different things to walk on, strawed up yards, loafing areas outside. Um, You see a lot of brushes now on on dairy units, toys, scratching posts. Uh, Last winter, we put in large tree stumps in our housed area for them to play with. And actually, we moved those around as well, so it became novel, novel experiences. So I think the answer should be the environment should match what resources there are. So it would be wrong to 
to outwinter cows at grass all year round in Derbyshire uh, on heavy soils because that would be not fair on the cows in terms of the conditions and the protection from the elements. So I think it's a it should have been bespoke. I think it should be resources match what's there and make that indoor environment as close to a natural environment as you possibly can. So it's starting from the cow, starting from the land resource that you have and the human resource that you have and designing your farm system, a bespoke farm system around that. Yes, yes. It's not, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all answer. Have you noticed a shift in the expectations of your customers as people have become more aware of farm animal welfare as an issue and, and you know, have, have come to understand it better over the course of the last 30 years or so? Yeah. Yeah, so there has been there has been a shift. There's no getting away from that. Um, but I also think that uh, now farms, yeah, we we are audited. Well, we actually have three audits a year. So our organic audit, our red tractor audit, um, and other welfare schemes. So I think it's almost like they don't. They're probably worrying overly now, when actually probably the the worry should have been three decades ago. So I think we've come on leaps and bounds. So I think, but um, I actually, you know, as I said before, we, we actually enjoy speaking to our and we haven't got direct customers but we actually enjoy interacting because ultimately everyone who eats eats up you know meat or dairy or milk um they are customers aren't they so um yes yeah, so i i think they they're right to 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 put an emphasis on that and i don't, I don't think we've got anything to to fear in terms of keeping up and and i think we're doing a lot more we just need to shout about it more And as a farmer yourself, how do you think an understanding of animals as sentient, emotional creatures should change the way that we rear and treat livestock? Does it influence the way that you farm? There's a lot of things. um, Yeah, I've I've sort of thought of three things straight away about what we do with this in mind. So, for example, if we're talking about social needs of of cattle, um, we tend to rear our... So if we're calf rearing, we always rear our calves in even numbers. So I think it's a known fact that uh, having observed calves in in research experiments, that they actually buddy up with a, um, a mate quite early on in life. And so if we're keeping them in twos or fours or eights or sixteens, they're always with a, a friend, so to speak. So that's something that that we do. And also we we try and rear in, the, in that social group, we try and avoid mixing um, too much or too regularly as well. So try and once they go into that group, they stay in that group. So it's a little bit like um, we wouldn't expect uh, children are all going back to school now. We wouldn't expect our children to move class every term and mix all the classes up, would we? Um, they actually stay in that cohort group right the way through school. And there's a reason for that is because they 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 make friends. And I don't think that's any different with cattle. Uh, we used to when we had, we had the dairy cows um, a milk recorder, so someone would come. On to the farm once a month and record the milk yield per cow that, that each cow gives and to do that she has to write down the numbers of the cows so when the cow um, calves for the first time she's given a, a unique number and if they carve um, obviously when the same roughly the same age they'll have consecutive numbers one of our milk recorders used to play something called cow bingo so when those cows came into the parlor if she had a like three consecutive numbers like two three and four stand next to each other in the parlor that would be cow bingo the ultimate would be say four in a row and actually it was surprising how often that would happen and why are we surprised because yeah they would come in with their mates and they obviously worked out what order they 
would would come in and they you could also tell which cows come in first so quite often cows the same cows would come in the first part of the milking and then the same ones at the end and actually it's little things like that that a farmer will notice and when cow number 15 um, is last to come in the parlor where she usually comes in in the first half an hour that would raise alarm bells and they'd then they'd act on that that information so there's obviously something perhaps not quite right with that cow so it's it's almost a subconscious thing from the farmer point of view and the other things we do is is just if we've got new experiences so training cows to the to coming into the milking parlor um, we allow time for them to to learn and adapt to do that we don't expect them to do a new thing straight away and there's the same thing could be applied to to people couldn't it and making their environments in interesting i think recent lockdowns have probably highlighted the need that uh, people need more than just food water and shelter uh, they need interaction they need exercise and they need opportunities for play david there must be some kind of a link between positive welfare and productivity are you aware of any examples of that certainly i think that there are lots of examples of uh, industries making very financially motivated decisions based on things that animals want and choose to to do and for example temple grand in in america has done some great work in abattoirs which is really focusing on the behavioral choice of what cows would choose to do in an abattoir and showing that that actually leads to better outcomes for increased meat quality etc and, and there's a really nice example of chickens i mean chickens production the mantra for producing meat chickens is that you have a one shared, you have a very uniform production system, same light patterns, same food, uh, because these are very similar chickens, they all need the same thing uh, and they don't need behavioural choice. But actually some interesting work to show that like their ancestors, the the red jungle fowl, uh, actually chickens do quite like and choose to have different types of light, uh, different um, light patterns. So they, in commercial chicken systems, they've provided different uh, amounts of light within a shed. And actually it, sh- it showed increased growth rate, uh, increase and improve food conversion ratio just providing that diversity of lights and who would have thought it that providing behavioral choice like that would actually increase a commercial measure such as growth rate so let's let's watch what the animals do and work with them thanks david i mentioned earlier rachel that you helped as part of the royal agricultural university's farmer working group on a new positive welfare framework what sort of things were being measured in the pilot scheme that you were part of? So the the audit. So as a dairy farmer, um, we formed a little invited to form a focus group with other other farmers, and we actually brainstorm areas of a cow's life, so to speak, that will we felt was contributed to a good life. So we tried to pick out areas that were key to contributing to a good life. That formed a framework. So those sections are physical environment. So that could be the flooring or the bedding. Um, it could be the thermal environment. So how, how cold or hot or drafty somewhere was. It looked at play, social interactions, maternal cow calf bonding, um, calves learning from their from their mothers. Interactions with stock keepers. That was a really important one we, we felt had to be in there. Um, access to pasture, feed choices, health and welfare, and um, observation and monitoring. So we looked at how in tune, you know, farmers were with the cows in terms of their behaviour and, and picking up problems before they arose almost. And the important thing about the framework 
is that it could be applied to all types of systems. So it's a list of questions as to what the carers have access to, but it, it can be those questions can be applied to all different sorts of system. Um, so my role really for helping with this was to translate the science which David and his team had come up with and translate that into a sort of farmer friendly language. So it could be actually asked, those questions could be asked on farm um, without the, uh, the need of an interpreter. Go on, give us an example of, of where the academics just got it wrong and, uh, and, well, and they needed to retranslate it into farmer speak. They didn't get it wrong, but there was there was probably things like affiliate affiliative behaviour and licking or something. And I said, what does that actually mean? And <laughs> they said, question. well, it just means the cows are, are just grooming each other and, and playing. So, um, so yeah, so locomotor, you know, we said that. I must, that I must use that phrase when my kids are playing and, and mucking around <laughs> later. That, I was telling them that's affiliative behaviour. <laughs> locomotor and, and things like that. It's like, do you mean running? Yes, we probably mean running. Okay, why don't we just put running then? <laughs> so things like that. So um, it was a yeah, it was a really enjoyable piece of work to to help with. So so what stage, David, is RAU at now with the positive welfare framework, and and how is it going to be used? We don't know the answer to that is because it it is being further developed uh, and and tested specifically with Defra at the moment. They're they're exploring options for UK agricultural policy in the animal health and welfare pathway, which is involves financial incentives to farmers to improve welfare. So the concept is being explored to understand farmers' attitudes to it, the uh, financial costs of providing different things, and yes, yeah, so that could inform that. So, so is the positive welfare framework potentially going to be something that helps the farm payments for better indeed, welfare? Yeah. Indeed, exactly. That's that's what it, it could be used for. I mean, at the end of the day, it is really also a communication tool for farmers to share with others about what good stuff they're doing, and that can work at all sorts of levels. You know, farmers sharing ideas, of best practice between other farmers, but also another potential use that's sort of related to that policy end is that different countries want to describe that they're how well they are doing in, in animal welfare policy uh, terms. You often hear about, you know, the UK is world leading in animal welfare and so say New Zealand and so say Denmark. And, you know, I mean, you hear it in many, many places at the moment. That's primarily based on legislation, which is a pretty rough measure mm. of, of animal welfare performance. And so positive welfare can help help with that. So that's something else that we're including in the policy debates at the moment, because we the national governments do want to share notes about how well they're doing. And the positive welfare framework is is, is potentially relevant at many different levels, from policy through to farmers. Uh, and fundamentally, it is about being able to communicate how well farmers are, are, are caring for their animals. And within that framework, I mean, you talk about being able to compare with other countries and, and have some sort of objective measure. Does that mean that they're scoring uh, within the framework that farmers can do better or worse? We're quite careful, actually. We've never gone down the, the route of really adding it up because actually they're quite difficult they're, they're measuring very different things and it's a, quite scientifically controversial to add them up and say one thing is more important than the other or twice as important as something else so it's actually we would prefer to think of it as more of a discussion tool this concept's important and this concept's important and there's this different way of doing this and a different way of doing that and share ideas so really 
the idea about positive welfare is, is to ensure that the good things in life are captured and valued rather than turning on its head and having another way of nagging farmers. That's not the intention of the exercise. Now, you've been involved in developing various farm animal welfare frameworks in the past. Do you think they're effective drivers of change? Uh, and actually, as a sub- sort of subsidiary question, who generally funds this kind of research? Where does the incentive come from to investigate these sorts of things? Yeah. Is, is the push coming from customers? Customers or from retailers or from government? Where's it coming from? Well, it's generally coming from all, all, all angles. I mean, let's take citizens, and I say that not because you must say citizens, I voting people that influence politicians, and they, they're quite clearly animal welfare is, is, is on the agenda. So that's why we're talking about financial incentives. In the marketplace, it's either consumers seek out higher welfare, or even if they're not doing that, they are choosing retailers that they trust and retailers are making their purchasing decisions. And then, of course, uh, as well as the uh, retailers and the industry trying to deliver what they expect their consumers to want, animal welfare charities, etc., have got an interest in promoting these, these ideas. So the funding has come from a range of those, of those interested uh, parties. It's not like the old days, whereas animal welfare was a bad thing and, and the industry was being defensive and trying to st- stop all these bad stories. Genuinely, I see government, industry and civil society groups genuinely having a debate about how best to improve welfare and communicate that to, to their customers or citizens. Which seems to indicate to me that these these frameworks, you know, that you've been developing over the course of the last decade or two or three, you know, they are effective drivers of change, partly because they're able to communicate what it is that's expected um, and communicate the sort of change that's necessary. Exactly. Communication is, is, is critical, but sometimes actually that activity doesn't, the communication happens a different different levels. So, for example, the the work we've done on welfare outcome assessments, which is seeing how well, often how healthy animals are in laying hens and dairy, etc., that's often a conversation between the farm assurance scheme and the farmer, and actually not so much between the customer. The customer sees the logo on the packet and says, well, it's Red Tractor or RSPC Assured or Organic, whatever it is, and they have trust in that. So, that's the key communication vehicle to the customer but there is a more detailed communication happening at the farmer end which is about how many lamb cows you've got what the feather losses in your chickens are about so it's communication at different levels and that communication needs to be relevant for that particular audience now a different framework that you've been involved in in the past is a sure well and uh, and that was uh, developing outcome based assessments which could then be sort of bolted on or integrated within kind of red tractor assessments for example that sort of thing are you expecting the positive welfare framework to be used in a similar sort of way or is it is it performing a different function i think in due course i think it, it could be yes there the sure well welfare outcome stuff is embedded into uh, laying hen systems dairy systems pig systems and those 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 conversations are, are already happening and data is being collected and and also improvements in welfare outcomes is is being demonstrated in all those sectors on the positive welfare side I think it's also often not about farmers' farmer assessments, those we've been talking about. It is actually also very relevant for looking at standards development, where different standards of different farm assurance schemes need to move on to. So that, that that's a, a, 
a different level of communication. And that is, it is already being used for those discussions. Rachel, coming back to you and just sort of thinking for a moment about broader sustainability. And you know, part of my work has been about looking at the link between animal health and welfare and the environment. And so from your own experience on the farm and from your work with RAU, do you think that there is also a link between positive welfare experience, good emotional experience and good environmental outcomes? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, undoubtedly, yes. If, if a dairy animal um, has a longer and healthier life, she's going to require a lot less resources than the, than something that doesn't, uh, the cow that doesn't. So there's less wasted inputs. Um, and likewise for a beef animal, um, it might grow faster from less feed. So its feed efficiency is more efficient if it's not set back. So for example, if we bought uh, 20, 20 beef animals from 20 different farms, I am, I'm certain that their productivity in terms of feed efficiency would be a lot worse than 20 animals from one farm. So just by the fact that we're mixing those animals, not, not purely from a disease point of view, but from a social point of view, um, they've all got their social groups and their social hierarchy. So the, the more we can make their life, give them more choice and, and enrich their environments, the healthier they'll be, they will be. And also time. So uh, I think I think time, time should be um, a sort of almost like a, we should have a time footprint. So as well as a carbon footprint, um, time spent on, on tasks that perhaps aren't necessary. So at the moment, um, we try and buy in animals that are sired by uh, polled breeds. So when I mean polled, obviously ones that don't naturally grow horns, because then we haven't got that we haven't got the need to disbud or take those buds horn buds out so there's time saved there's lower stress on the animal um you know obviously we use, we use pain relief um to do that but we're also reducing the the medicines that we need to do that so i think things like that that we can do easily which actually actually saving us money um, and actually mean that the, the animals never set back there's less intervention but there are still a lot of unanswered questions and we need more I think I feel you know we need more research on on this so what do we really know about the immune status of, of these animals um, you know have we actually done trials where an animal particularly for cattle we might, might have done it on 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 hens and and smaller animals but on cattle you know what do we really know about their their gut microbiomes you know is the way they're reared you know is rearing on the cow versus artificial rearing you know on milk powder are there differences you know maybe the differences to start with but do those differences carry on through later life so when these animals are, are three or four year, years old is there still a difference that that should be part of the 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 analysis when you're looking at costs and how, how systems are run. So I think we need to follow these cattle through more and rather than just looking at them in snapshot trials, actually build up real knowledge over their lifetime. That's really fascinating. And of course, the whole genetics piece, genetics and breeding and the environmental benefits associated with that, I think are really interesting. And then, of course, there's, you know, there's just kind of the, the straightforward stuff like, you know, providing trees or big hedges for shelter and developing a good sward. There are clearly carbon benefits and biodiversity benefits uh, to doing that as well. So David, just finally, when we spoke before the recording, you talked about the way in which learned emotions can be passed on between different generations of farm animals. Now, is this emotional behaviour learned from parents or is it passed on genetically? So the, there's been some fun, interesting work about how learning uh, about bad, good and bad experiences. So for example, there's been some nice little work in chickens which showed that 
basically the basics of empathy, that they are observing bad behaviours in other animals and, and learning to avoid, etc. So there is definitely learning between animals. But there's also, these can have cross-generational effects, particularly bad experiences, very stressful experiences or even starvation events, those sorts of extreme events, can, you can demonstrate effects in subsequent generations. So that's called an epigenetic effect, which is really around, not just the genes themselves. It's something about the, the environment that has affected that animal that is passed on. So that effect has been shown in, in pigs, for example, in their stress reactions. It's also something that has actually been observed in human populations that have been ex exposed to extreme stress, starvation reactions. So we're only just getting to grips with this, the complexity of the emotional state, how sensitive we are to different situations. And animals have exactly the same level of complexity as we do. Uh, I mean, that that is, I mean, that's quite a mind-blowing thing to end on, really. And, you know, we don't have time to go into the detail of it. But the idea that these emotional um, reactions are actually something that get embedded in genetics, passed on generation to generation. Um, I mean, you know, quite a quite aside from farm animals, the idea that that could be taking place in humans as well. If you grow up on a, on a, on a council estate that has particular, you know, sort of pockets of poverty, if you grow up in a war zone, that there can be impacts that are generational i mean it's the implications there are are really pretty enormous yes yes they are are indeed and it's an example of how working with understanding animals in their environment and what affects them can actually help humans too we're animals too funnily enough so uh Let's, let's watch and learn. That's been really interesting. Thanks so much. But that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Rachel Haller from Maundrell's Farm in Somerset and Professor David Main from the Royal Agricultural University. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlay. Locustain. Bye for now.